Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Frank King. He's a TEDx speaker. He speaks on suicide prevention. He's a motivational speaker. And um, I suspect he has a pretty strong sense of humor, which will come into play and and hopefully work (laughs) out. Frank, thanks for coming. Uh, My pleasure, yes. Tell me about um, a little bit about your background and history. How did you get into speaking? And um, in one hand, it's very humorous, but then also it seems like you talk about uh, suicide prevention, so that's very serious. But tell me a bit about your background, if you would. Well, I told my first joke in the fourth grade. Students laughed. The teacher was so hysterical, she had to excuse herself to go to the teacher's lounge. And I thought, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. In twelfth grade, they had a talent show, and nobody had ever done stand-up before. So I signed up and won. And I told my mother I was going to be a stand-up comedian, and she was big into education. She goes, no, son, you're going to college. I don't care what you get, what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. Went to school at Chapel Hill, got a couple of college degrees, and moved with my high school sweetheart slash first wife to San Diego, California. And there's a comedy store in San Diego, a branch of the one, the famous one up on Sunset. And they had open mic nights. And that, that was the beginning of the end of my insurance career and the beginning of the end of my first marriage because she was four square against me doing comedy. So then we went, went on the road. And then when I came off the road in mid-90s, the comedy club thing was kind of burned out. And so I became a corporate comedian. And for about 10 years till 2007 or eight, the last recession, I did good, clean stand-up comedy at you know conferences after dinner, after lunch. And then with the, with the recession, we lost everything in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Yeah. Now, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. And a, a friend of mine came up to me after one of my keynotes. He never heard me say the phrase, I, did, you know, I didn't pull the trigger. And he goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, you're trying to sound slightly less disappointed. 
that's yeah, that's, the, that's, that's, uh, that's the comedy. social ignorance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the comedy comes with suicide. So after the recession, when the speaking business came back, the meeting planner said, Frank, we love you. We can't pay you just to be funny. I'm sorry. You had to teach us something. Something wasn't in the world without teaching anybody. And then I started thinking about my mental health history and my family. It's all genetic. More nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. And I thought I could I could talk about suicide prevention, tell my story. And, and so I got some training in. I've taken several courses in suicide prevention. So that when somebody comes to one of my keynotes, they have... I teach them how to spot the signs of depression, thoughts of suicide, what to do and say kind of thing. So that's when I made the jump from funny speaker to speaker who is funny. And the somebody asked me, does it keep you from getting booked as a suicide prevention speaker because you're a comedian? I said, no, you got it backwards. They want the story. They want the learning objectives, you know, teach them something. And the fact that I can give them a little comic relief along the way, you know, makes it much more palatable, easier to digest all that serious. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. It seems like uh, your life is like a, a series of um, opposites or dichotomies. You know, you're selling insurance, but yeah, you're doing comedy, which yep. is the opposite to me. You're working in corporate America, but doing comedy, which there doesn't seem to be much comedy there. No. And then suicide mixed with comedy. So it's, yeah, a very interesting dichotomy. So if you would, tell me a bit about your past situation. Like, how did it get to the point where you, you know, like, how did you make a decision? Like, you were going to end things and... What were oh. some of the nuances of that situation? The speaking business dropped off about 80%. And we had a big mortgage payment, even though we put half down on the farm we were living on. Big mortgage payment. We had a property, a rental property, negative cash flow. So I was upside down on everything. And when you cut the income by 80%, you know, I used all my credit lines and all my credit cards, maxed all those out thinking, this will, this will pass. <laughs> so I got to the point where I called one of those nonprofit credit counselors. And they said, Frank, look. It's time to pull the plug. It's not like you're buying ski dudes and Coke. You know, you see dudes and Coke, you were, you know, flat screen TVs, you were just trying to live. So there's no, you know, there's no shame or moral issue. You just can't make your payments. So we filed chapter seven, broke my wife's heart, which was killing me. And that's, and then I realized, wait a minute, I got a million dollar life insurance policy. If I kill myself, my wife will be restored instantly financially she'd be broken hearted but she certainly won't be broke she stay on the farm and you know bank the rest of the money and so the what held me up was having sold insurance life insurance in particular i knew that my million dollar life insurance policy had a two-year suicide clause meaning if i kill myself in less than 24 months then they would just return the premiums they wouldn't pay the death benefit so i called my insurance agent and sure enough I'd only had the policy 22 months. I had to wait, had to wait 60 days to kill myself, which is not a problem for me because I have a, a mental illness called chronic suicidal ideation, meaning suicide is an option on the menu always as a solution for problems large and small. My car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts, get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That's the way my brain works. So waiting two months, you know, that's what I, when I, when I made the jump to comedy, I've got a TED talk called Suicide, the Secret of My Success. Because I realized, even though it was a lovely woman that I married, my first wife, I was miserable. I was selling insurance for her father's company because that's what she wanted me to do. And I was miserable. And I wasn't going to open mic night, which is where I thought I belonged. And I realized, if I don't change something, I'm going to kill myself sooner rather than later. So my second thought was, well, wait a minute. I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I can still kill myself. 
And like most mentally ill people, I figured I was the only one who ever had those thoughts. And I've met half a dozen entertainers and entrepreneurs, same basic thought process. I, you know, this is not my life. I don't belong here. I belong over there. And if I don't go, I'm going to kill myself. So what the heck? Put it all on one roll of the dice. When did you first start experiencing the idea of, you know, thinking suicide was an option? And how did you figure out that this was a, I don't know, a persistent thing or a named condition or, you know, just tell me a little bit about that if you would. Yeah, my first thought of suicide, I've been depressed off and on when I started college, but I just thought because my my first wife eventually and I were going to colleges a great distance apart. And I thought I was just, you know, like just puppy love and I was heartbroken because we weren't together. Looking back, that was probably the beginning of my depression. And then a couple of years into the marriage when I realized wrong woman, wrong job, that was when I had my first thought of, well, just you can just kill yourself. It's just the way my, it's like a friend of mine describes it. It's like one of those little planes with a banner on the back that flies over the stadium with a message on the banner. You know, the plane goes through your mind and then the banner says, well, why don't you just kill yourself? Uh, it just comes out of nowhere and you know, disappears, but it's always there. So it's, I, you know, and I made the change. I made, because I knew if I didn't make a change, I was going to kill myself. So I made the change to stand-up comedy. And fortunately it worked. I thought it would. And matter of fact, first night on stage, Middle of my five minutes, inside my head, I heard a little voice say, you're home. Oh, okay. And it's only happened a couple, three times in my life where I, you know, unbidden, that thought bubbled up your home. So I knew I was in the right place. If I'd known how hard it was to make a living right. stand up, I might have hesitated a bit, but I didn't. I didn't know. I had no idea. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So you just jumped in and tried it and what happened? I jumped in. I started open mics on April 1st, April Fool's Day, 84, 1984. And then in the fall of 95, the improv had come to town. They opened a comedy club, San Diego Improv. They had a funniest person in San Diego contest and I won. I got a thousand bucks and a lot of publicity that I could use to promote myself on the road. And I asked my girlfriend, now my wife of 34 years, I asked her, I said, hey, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian. You want to come along? Thinking she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. So we gave up the apartment, our jobs, uh, jumped into my teeny tiny Dodge Colt and took off across the country and didn't, didn't have a home for over seven and a half years. Uh, and I opened up, worked with Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, and Jeff Foxworthy, and Ron White, Adam Sandler, Kevin James, uh, Dr. Ken, back when they were just comics. That's cool. So what, what kind of insights did you get, by the way? And I know we're, we're kind of going a little off topic, but what's the industry like and what are the people like in the industry, the comedians? Well, the ones who actually launched and escaped gravity and become famous like Dr. Ken, he was an open micer. When I was in Raleigh working at a radio station and emceeing the open mic night at the comedy club, Dr. Ken was in medical school at Duke and he would come over on amateur nights and perform. And he was, you can often tell, you know, it wasn't spectacularly funny off the top or at the beginning, 
but you can tell there's, you know, there's comedy there. And, and once he get hits his stride, and of course now he's huge and, you know, in the hangover movies and, and movies in general in LA. So it, the 30 comics I started with 30 ish in San Diego problem for a lot of them was they were, they were funnier than I am, but they didn't have any business sense. I had stationery and envelopes and business cards and it was a business. And I, that's what insurance taught me. And I knew how to ask for referrals. So I was treating it like a business. Most of those guys and gals, it was just a rolling cocktail party, you know, because you get free or inexpensive drinks. If you're, if you're a comedian working the show. And for me, Uh, for me, it wasn't that it was a business and I was going to, you know, I was going to make my living doing it. And I've had to reinvent myself several times from road comic to radio personality to corporate comic and now corporate speaker. So I've had a number of iterations of Frank King in my career. It seems like a corporate comic is like a, an oxymoron. What was that like, by the way? Yeah, I think everybody should hire a corporate comic because we're truth tellers. We observe and then we report. And I was talking to a guy the other day who has, and I've done this myself, he went in to interview the managers of all the departments before he did the comedy show. And he used some of what he learned from the managers. And he said, you know, they all said the same thing. They all have the same complaints about the same people, you know, in the upper echelon, but they never tell anybody. It's just bar talk, he said. They 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 complain, bitch and moan, but never to the people in the C-suite. And so he did a little bit of that, you know, used a little bit of that information in his act, specifically to point out, look, everybody's talking about this outside the building. Uh, and nobody, it's the elephant in the room. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pull back the curtain and show you who the elephant is. So yeah, but corporate comedy, the thing about corporate comedy is, and a lot of people, a lot of comics don't realize this, there's much more money in um, clean comedy because you can do it on cruise ships, corporate events, colleges. And so HR usually hires a comedian. And a woman said to me, we're paying you $5,000 for 45 minutes of just jokes. And I said, no, you're paying me $5,000, not for the 45 minutes of jokes I tell, for the 45 minutes of jokes I don't tell. And I said, you're paying me basically. So when I get done with my job, you still have a job. You put a, you put a microphone in a comic, yeah. man, they can do a lot of damage in a very short period of time. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I don't know anything from the uh, corporate comedy that, uh, I don't know, taught you a lot of, you know, they taught you important lessons. Like what, what did you get out of doing it? Well, that people will pay a lot of money to keep their job that in terms of supply and demand there there are far fewer clean comics and there are far more conferences and conventions than there will ever be comedy clubs i mean there's conferences and conventions in every major city every day so it's a much bigger market and then the transition from comedian to speaker what i learned there was is that if you can give them the comedy and a message something to take away some action items or whatever they'll pay you even more money but the key was rebranding from a funny speaker to a speaker who was funny. Cause I've been funny for a couple of decades. And so how do you, how do you, you know, how do you convince meeting planners and speakers bureaus? You can do something serious. Well, I thought I'll do a Ted talk and I'll come out as depressed and suicidal and talk about shoving a gun in my mouth. That should prove to them that I can. And it did, it worked. And then I've done five more since then all on mental health topics to reinforce. I guess what I learned there was branding is very important. You know, you need to become a brand. So that eventually when somebody's looking for a mental health or suicide prevention speaker, they're not looking for anybody. They're looking for you. That's what you're trying over, over a long, long, over the long term. 
And, and I believe you, I learned you have to pick a lane. When you're a comedian, you, either, you pick a lane of either clean comedy or dirty comedy because there are markets for each. It's the one in the middle, you know, well, he's sort of dirty. No work because, you know, dirty, you can do cable. Clean, you can do corporate events, cruise ships, colleges. You know, so it's, you need to pick a lane. That's, that's something. I, and you, you have to pick a point of view as a comedian. That's very funny, Frank. All those things are very funny. But what's your point of view? Who are you? I want to watch your comedy show and, and figure out who you are is a lesson that I learned. There's a show called um, Crashing, about a comic who, very religious background, goes to New York, tries to become a comedian, and he's sleeping on people's couches. That's why they call it Crashing. Had a great set at one of the clubs there. And the club owner calls him over and he goes, I had a great set. And she goes, yeah, it was funny. But who are you? You're just another six foot tall, brown haired, white guy. Nothing in your act tells me anything about who you are, or what your point of view is. So that that I learned in, in speaking and in comedy, you need to specialize and then figure out who figure out who your ideal clients are. Figure out you need if you're if you're a speaker, you need somebody who has a problem to solve that you have a partial or full answer for. Yeah, so it sounds think, like any other any other business. You have to niche. Yeah, you know, choose your niche and understand your audience. And so, yeah. yeah, it sounds exactly like a business. It, yeah, and that's what I teach my speaker marketing clients. Look, we have to figure out what your lane is, and then we have to decide who will pay you to speak on that. And I said we should probably choose three to five ideal clients. Like I was talking to a guy yesterday who signed up for my TEDx coaching, and he's he's black and he's a motivational inspirational speaker. He has a motivational inspirational speech. And I said, man, that's where I would start because as far as I know, other than Les Brown and a couple of who charges who knows how much for a speech, there are not a lot of $5,000 to $10,000 black motivational speakers. So I would, for your ideal client, I would do, I would have somebody pitching every association that has the word black in it, black bankers, black funeral directors, black car dealers, and, you know, because each one's got a national and probably a bunch of state jackets. So they'd much rather hear a motivational speech from you than from me. And I think there's a yeah, yeah, there's an affinity because, you know, they're they're black, the speaker's black, it makes more sense. Yeah, I gotcha. And 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 there are fewer, there are very few, as far as I can tell, you know, black motivational speakers in that price range. So there's a vacuum there. You can fill that void and go really, you know, go deep, not wide. Just so I would start with any association. You know, that has an annual meeting and uses outside speakers and has enough money to pay your fee. I saw it right there. The black bankers, black funeral directors, black dentists, black veterinarians. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Well, I guess, so I guess going back towards the, uh, you know, well, the unhappier side of it, I guess you were kind of involved in the um, suicide prevention industry in a way. Like, did you volunteer for a suicide hotline or what kind of work did you do to help other people? That's how I make my living is I speak on suicide prevention as a workplace health and safety issue. I just got back from Nebraska, Montana. I spoke to the Montana Farm Bureau Federation. And because agriculture, farmers are in the top 10 at-risk occupations for suicide. It's one of the six occupations that I targeted. Dentists, veterinarians, physicians, attorneys, construction, agriculture. They all have high rates of suicide. They all have you know associations and meetings and use outside speakers. So I speak on suicide prevention. And what I go in and do is I, eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent, can't make up their mind. Nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt, which tells me the vast majority of people want to live. They want somebody to notice something and interrupt, intervene. The catch is, the trick is, and this is what I teach, teach them how to spot the signs of depression, thoughts of suicide, 
what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say, and how to find resources. So that's the takeaways I have is this suicide prevention education, become a mental health sort of first responder. So and what are what are some of the signs and what, what pushes people over the edge? Uh, signs of depression, uh, has trouble getting up in the morning, rallies in the afternoon. Either they eat too much or they can't eat or they sleep too much, they can't sleep. And here's one you can, you can observe actually on Zoom is they let their personal hygiene go. You know, they're usually pretty well put together. Then they, you know, they zoom in and you think, man, hair's dirty, clothes aren't quite so clean. It may be because they're having difficulty getting out of bed in the morning. They're running out of wash and jump in the shower. So mm-hmm. those are three, three. Now the question comes up. So what do you say to somebody you think is depressed? Well, let's start with what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? What you do say is, I uh, know, I've had, I've had people tell me that. Uh, what you do say is, look, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not crazy or lazy or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. I also know that with time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And then you have to ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? Well, let's say they're not forthcoming, but your gut tells you that's what's going on. How would you know? What signs that they may be thinking about suicide? Well, they talk about death and dying. They, you catch them Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their music, their artwork, their writing. They're getting their affairs in order. They're giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. And here's one that's counterintuitive and I think very dangerous is they've been depressed forever. And now for no apparent reason, they're in a really good mood. They may be in a good mood because they've chosen time, place, and method for their suicide. And they know the pain is coming to an end. That's what a lot of people don't understand about suicide. Not so much often about killing yourself. It's more often about ending the pain. So people will actually appear to be happier in the, what, the last week or last few days before they they do something like that? Yeah, because they know the pain's coming to an end. It's finite. It's not going to go on forever. Yeah, it's, I, when I was suicidal, I just wanted to end the pain. I mean, I wanted to leave, and part of ending the pain was leaving my wife in a financial position where she'd be restored. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's most often about, simply about ending the pain. So uh, did you ever volunteer for like a suicide hotline or was that not, not a necessary part of the training? No, not, no, but I have taken a number of suicide prevention classes. Um, I just, two weeks ago, I did the three-day training to become a mental health first aid train the trainer. And I took a class this week called ASSIST, which is Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Assist Training. And it's it's all about how you deal with somebody you suspect may be having thoughts of suicide. And I took a course called QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer. It's 12-hour training on suicide. So I've had probably three or four suicide prevention trainings, either train the trainer or just take the class. So what, what kind of useful stuff did you learn from the classes? Like, um, do you, um, have you been able to literally help some folks not to commit suicide that thanked you later? Like, were you able to intervene? No. People you knew? Every now and then I'll get an email, email or a DM that will thank me for, you know, listen, Frank, I saw your presentation. I, you know, I had a really bad point in my life and you're, you know, you're vulnerable and you shared your story. And, and I just thought if he can do it, I can do it. And that was eight months ago and I'm still here. So I get quite a bit of that. Well, that's um, cool. I, I get my phone number out every time I do a keynote. And I say, look, if you're suicidal, call the lifeline. If you're just having a really bad day, call the crazy person. And here's my phone number. Yeah. And people call. Like I called last month and said, I'm depressed. I'm suicidal. 
We talked a little more. And what I would have been looking for in that conversation from him is called a turning point, just kind of a spark of uncertainty to find out if there's, you know, he's, if he's made up his mind yet. Okay. And he said to me, I just picked up the Amtrak schedule, which tells me that he's thinking about stepping in front of a train. And I said, look, I'm not going to ask you not to kill yourself because that's not my jam. That's not, you know, it's your choice. I would prefer you didn't, but that's your choice. Now, I would not, I would advise you, do me a favor and don't do it on the train tracks because when you step up on the train tracks, you're probably going to lock eyes with the engineer who can do absolutely nothing about it. You're going to take your life and ruin theirs. So everybody who does this kind of work has a different philosophy or, you know, or slightly different philosophy on suicide, you know, Who's to say? Who's to choose? Is it your life anyway? Well, it sounds like being nice and being, you know, 100% sympathetic doesn't work. It sounds like it's a little bit of tough love, a little bit of rationalization or applying rational principles. And I, I guess it sounds like a mix of a different strategies to help somebody. But how, how would you characterize it? I think that's close. In this training, you get the story first, find out where the loss and pain is. And then, again, you're listening for those turning points, the, that little slice of uncertainty. And once, you know, and it can be something as simple as, uh, you know, are you thinking about suicide? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. That tells me they're also thinking about not doing it. So then I say, does that mean, that if I'm hearing you correctly, does that mean, you know, you're thinking about doing it, but that also means you're thinking about not doing it? You're not, you're not sure? If they say, no, I guess I'm not sure. Then I would say, well, what I'd like to do is, while you figure that out, if you be, if you're willing, I'd like to help you help you stay safe for today. You know, just start okay. today. Then you come up with a plan. If there's like a, are there guns in the house? Tell me about your alcohol use. There's a series of questions. Your little little um, like six way folder, a little tiny folder. It's got all the questions that you ask. Like, is are there firearms in the house? You know, tell tell me about your alcohol and drug use. Well, what, what would you think if you just if you cut the six pack of beer every night to two? Just had just you know stopped at two, and you get them to buy into each step they're comfortable with, rather than tell them to do something. You get their buy in because they're more okay. more likely to do it if they bought in. I don't know when when you speak to people that appear to be suicidal, is it um, does it feel like a hostage negotiation? Like are they like if you tell them the wrong thing that it, it may set them off, or is it not like that? Like it seems like you're talking to them in a free way. But then again, like, what do you have to be careful of saying when you're dealing with someone in that situation? How sensitive are they? Well, you know, varies by situation. Um, if they're standing on a railing on a bridge, you know, I mean, you handle it one way. I, I would. I'd, first, I'd get out, stop the car and get out and go up to them. And I think speaking, to, uh, you know, just being being yourself and, and, and not sugarcoating anything and just showing concern, but speak very as I said, you're supposed to ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? Well, let's say they say they are having thoughts of suicide. What do you do then? Well, you say, do you have a plan? And if they say they have a plan, then you say, what is your plan? And if the plan is detailed at time, place, and method, then best to get them on the phone with a suicide prevention lifeline, or now for younger people, because they tend to be more forthcoming in text, there's a mm -hmm. text line, 741-741. You text the word help or connect to 741-741. Probably be somebody about your age on the other end texting back. Yeah. People always ask, when do you call the cops? Well, if they're in a, an immediate danger to themselves or others, you got to call the cops. That's going to, if the cops come and they arrest them and take them in front of a judge, the judge will decide, should they be locked down for 72 hours? It's called an involuntary detention order. Right. 
Yep. And, you know, it's very controversial because you're taking away personal freedom for 72 hours. But a lot of other people believe that it's a great way to just, you know, lie down, let somebody else worry about everything else. You know, three hots in a cot, basically. The But what if they've got a plan, but it's not well formed? You know, it's not really solid. And there's nothing in the textbooks about this. But a psychiatrist friend and I came up with, well, if it's, it's a plan, but it's not really detailed, I would say, well, tell me, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then you say, okay, well, then tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever it is that's keeping them here so they can hear it out loud. They have to think about it and, you know, hear it out loud. And that seems to help? Yes. The codicil is we can't save everybody. You know, only eight, only eight out of 10 are ambivalent. Only nine out of 10 give hints. But we can save, <laughs> can save the vast. The good news is, and I usually close my keynotes with this, the good news is you can make a difference. You can save a life. And you can do it by doing something as simple as we're doing right here. And that is starting a conversation. Yeah. Be brave. Be persistent. If you think something's wrong, don't just take, I'm fine for an answer. Are there any innovations that, you know, are in the world of suicide prevention, anything new that's come up? Or is it just like these basic core set of skills that, you know, once you learn them, that's the best you can do? No, uh, there's um, not in terms of the teaching. The teaching improves every year. It's updated with the latest science. There are two things happening, actually. Uh, One thing is psilocybin, which is a psychoactive ingredient in magic mushrooms. The Canadian government's done a great deal of research with the military. And turns out that psychedelic is extremely good on depression, PTSD, and substance abuse disorder in microdoses with therapy. And so in Oregon, about a year from now, January 1st, 2023, psilocybin will become illegal for psychiatrists to prescribe to people like me. And they think maybe it's not just a patch over the depression, it's a fix, a rewiring. The second thing, the second thing that's come along in the last few years, they now have a cheek swab DNA test like Ancestry for psychotropics. So if you're depressed and your doctor gives you an antidepressant prescription and it doesn't work, then I would get the cheek swab DNA test because they take your DNA and they try to match it with the, with the antidepressant that they think will work best with your metabolism. So it's called precision medicine. It gets a little better every year. So those are two things. Those are two things on the horizon that could significantly bring the rates down. Yeah, no, that's great. Have you um, have you done this swab yourself? And if so, did you figure out anything? Uh, no, I did the um, the first prescription my doctor gave me worked and works very well for me. Oh, good. Yeah, so if it wasn't working, though, I'd have gone right straight to the swab and let them do their DNA testing and tell me what what they think will work best. Okay. Well, very good, Frank. We're just about out of time, but. Um... So for listeners that know someone that may be exhibiting these signs or they themselves are having trouble, uh, what's a first step recommendation for those two situations? I would uh, I would text the 741-741 suicide prevention lifeline. They'd much rather hear from you, what they call upstream, where you're just beginning to struggle with these thoughts. I mean, they're, well, they're certainly willing to talk to you downstream when you're on the, on the cusp of dying by suicide, but they'd much rather, you know, as you're going, as you're sliding downstream, contact them early. So you can begin, you know, suggestions, resources, so game plan. So when someone first contemplates this, how is it different from later on after they've contemplated it many times? Does it does it become like a rumination or does it become a a voice or an urge that gets stronger and stronger and becomes all consuming? Or like how does the path go? Well, again, everybody's path is different. With chronic suicidal ideation, it's always there. Somebody asked me 
was the last time suicidal thought? And I said, what time is it? Oh my God. I go, no, I'm joking. It was last week. It was Tuesday. I had a really bad day. And the thought crossed my mind. Hey, we can, we can fix this. So, but now after having all those thoughts, all those years, I'm so used to it now that it's just, you know, it's like, oh, suicide. Oh, well, there's an idea. That's the benefit of being old is I've been through my depression cycle. It's like, it's a three day cycle for, I can't tell you how many times. So I know when I begin to slide downhill on one day, in 72 hours, I'll be flying level again. I'm just, I'm used to the, but if you're younger and you haven't been through this a number of times, or you're simply situationally depressed by the pandemic and all its fallout. I mean, how do you know? If you've never been depressed, how do you know that it's depression? How do you know why you can't get out of bed in the morning? That, those are the people I worry about. The ones that have never been depressed and all of a sudden. Does it, going through depression cycles though, does it wear you down over time? Or is it uh, you come back and you're refreshed for the next time? I know it's a weird way to put it, but does it wear you down or is it not like that? It wears you down, but I've learned, I used to say I fight depression. And that's, that's incorrect, inaccurate. Fight would imply I can win. And it's in my DNA. So I can't win. I can lose and kill myself or tie. And so I kind of, and I take a, there's a martial art called Aikido. And Aikido is all about blending with the energy of your opponent rather than opposing it. So I try to take an Aikido mindset because the depression has a great energy. So rather than push back against it, I try to flow with it. And it seems to help. So it's, it takes less energy to go with it than it does to oppose it. How do you go with it, though? I mean, uh, when people are depressed, do they struggle against it or by definition are they just going with it uh well a lot of people struggle against it and you know and they're in something of a stalemate even physically they just can't move i mean they just can't get up and get out of bed and go do their thing uh what i do is there's a technique called gamification let's say i'm having trouble getting out of bed because i'm depressed terribly depressed i make a list of six things a to-do list and the game is once i scratch off number six you know get it done all i'm done then I don't care if it's three in the afternoon, broad daylight. I can go back to bed, pull the covers over my head and watch the next episode of the mayor of Kingstown or whatever. So that's the game. And this, a lot of people with mental illness use games to get themselves moving forward. That's how I flow with the energy is I just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Until, mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, in other words, in other words, don't let it, don't let it stop you in your track. There's a, well, inertia with motion for, you know, an object in motion remains in motion until I could have by another fort. And that's kind of how it is. You can just get up and moving forward. And I got yeah, my that's list. very useful. Yeah, I got my list. And as soon as I scratch it off, baby, shower, take my meds and hit the rack. So do you feel like most of the time when you do these basic activities that the depression has gone away enough that you can still function? Or like how well, often do you find yourself saying, all right, I did it, I'm going back to bed? Uh, mostly I function until normal bedtime. Because once you get moving forward, and I have a self-care plan. And I recommend that everybody have one, whether you're mentally ill or not. See, the thing about mental illness is I wake up in an uncertain world every day before the pandemic, after the pandemic, you know, it didn't really matter what was going on. It's uncertain. And so over, over time, like most mentally ill people, I developed a self-care plan. Uh, mine is diet. I'm on the keto diet and I eat once a day. So I do intermittent fasting, exercise, so I exercise five times a week, meditation twice a day for about 29 minutes. It's a guided meditation, takes me down, brings me back up. So diet, exercise, meditation, a good night's sleep is restorative. I always get a good night's sleep. And then medication is number five. I take a little bit of Wellbutrin. And so, but that's every day. So it's it's more of a routine maintenance thing. If you routinely maintenance your brain, then you're much less likely that depression is going to not be quite so deep, won't last quite so long, won't happen quite so often. But 
it all that those routines also prepare you for the times when it's difficult to get out of bed because you, yeah. you're in a routine. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. Well, very good, Frank. You know, thanks for all this. I know the interview kind of went back and forth and up and down and sideways. But <laughs> I think we got a lot of good info. But uh, thank you very much for you know who you are and what you do and what you bring to the world. So I appreciate you coming. It's uh, it's my passion and my pleasure. So Frank, you mentioned seven four one seven four one. You text help there if you're having a problem. Any other ways for people to follow up or learn more about you and and what you do? Yes, I have a website. It's called The Mental Health Comedian, or as we say down south, The Mental Health Comedian. And if you go there, co-authored three books on men's mental health, and I'm recording them for Audible. I'm narrating them. And the first one is on my website. If you put your email address in, you can download the MP3 for free. It's unabridged. It's It's a book on men's mental health, about four hours. And so if you have a man in your life or you are a man and you're struggling, it's a great manual. It's book one of a four book series, but it's the only one I've recorded voice for. So I put it up there on, on my website for free. So the mental health comedian. Okay. Well, very good. Frank, again, thank you. It's been good. My pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.